Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's May 1st, May Day, which may or may not be important to you. After a month of sheltering in place with a kid who won't go back to school until August, I'm beginning to wonder if anything is important anymore. But it's May, and the sun has to come out sometime. Tonight, I will host some elaborate springtime pagan celebrations in my house, and you're all invited. It's mainly going to involve binge-watching Netflix and listlessly strumming a slightly out-of-tune banjo ukulele, but you're welcome to join me, as long as you stay six feet away from everybody else and keep your masks on. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Sherry Wendlinger, who teaches history online at Southern New Hampshire University. She's going to talk about her background and her research process, including her use of specific sources related to her research projects. Dr. Wemlinger recorded this episode on her own, so you won't hear my voice, which may be for the best. I look forward to hearing from listeners about that. I would like to begin by thanking Dr. Denning for the opportunity to do this podcast. As a historian, it's always exciting to be able to share my research and experiences. Today, I would like to discuss several aspects of my experience as a graduate student, how I arrived at the topic for my dissertation, my experiences in the archives, and then close with an overview of my project and some information concerning my research. First, a bit of background will help you to put the rest of this information into context. I think that it makes a big difference uh, for you to understand who I am. Um, as a side note, the reason I chose history is my interest in people, and so getting acquainted is an important part of my personal experience. I'm the mother of four grown children, and for a large portion of my life, I was a stay-at-home mom. Because of several circumstances, my husband and I decided to homeschool our children. At the time, we lived in a very rural area that received a considerable amount of snow. So I decided uh, to homeschool, and I homeschooled him through high school. When my last child graduated from high school and started college, I decided to go back to college and get a degree so that I could teach. At the time, my goal was just to basically get a bachelor's degree and then to begin teaching perhaps at the mid-school and maybe high school level. As it turned out, I was assigned an advisor. Um, her name was Heather Street Salter. Uh, she was the chair of the World History Program at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Dr. Salter uh, is now a professor of history at Northeastern University in Boston. I completed my bachelor's degree in two years, and for my master's, I decided to focus on non-Western history using a world history approach. So world history looks more at global connections and systems and not at discrete regional events. So although these events are uh, the basis of the study, the goal of world history, a world historian is to focus on the larger implications of those events. I was interested in Africa and Asia, as well as imperialism and religion as themes. When considering career options, I decided I wanted to teach at an institution of higher learning and discovered that in order to do that, I would need to complete a PhD. One aspect of this, which is important, relates to why I made this choice. When I first decided to go back to school, I attended a community college in Albuquerque, New Mexico. While I was a student there, I became friends and study partners with a group of Hispanic women in their early 20s. These young women were single mothers who were working full-time 
and going to school to provide their children a better future. I was so impressed with their dedication and hard work, and I just knew this was something that I would like to be a part of. So that is one reason why teaching at SNHU is so important to me. It provides me with a chance to work with students from all walks of life and from a variety of places. As I mentioned earlier, um, I chose history because of my interest in people, and SNHU provides me a great platform uh, for getting acquainted with and working with a variety of people. While completing my PhD, um, I worked at Washington State University teaching world history uh, one and two, as well as world trade and Middle Eastern history. I also taught one of the capstone courses for all undergraduate history students. Uh, this capstone course focused on writing their senior thesis. In that position, I was able to choose what topic I would like the students to focus on and so for my class, the students uh, focused on pop culture. We had so much fun with this class. Uh, the students were able to use movies and music and uh, TV to look at how historically ideas of race, gender, um, those things were formed. And so this was a, a wonderful class, not only just for creating some very, very fascinating research, but also for being able to get to some of those major uh, issues in life that the students were dealing with at the time. After I left Washington State University, I took a tenure-track position at West Virginia in West Virginia at Fairmont State University um, in Fairmont, West Virginia. And that was a great place to work. I worked with some amazing students, and I really, really enjoyed working at Fairmont State. Um, there, while I was there, I taught the world history courses, of course. Um, I also taught Middle Eastern uh, history and the history of Islam. I taught uh, women in world history. Then I also taught the world trade class. Um, but because of a desire to be closer to my family, um, I have seven grandchildren, and so I decided to move to Northern Virginia, and I began teaching at Patrick Henry College. Very recently, two of my children moved to North Carolina, and I already have one daughter who lives here, so I decided to relocate uh, to North Carolina, and so now I live outside of Charlotte. So now that you understand kind of that background uh, about me, let's move on to some of the really interesting parts of this, which are some of the experiences of being a graduate student and every history professor, uh, I'm sure every Buddy who's actually you know gone through graduate school can tell you all kinds of amazing fun stories about their experience. And then I also want to dis discuss with you how I decided on the topic that I would like to pursue for my dissertation research. As a graduate student, I had the opportunity to form a cohort with the other graduate students in the history department. This was an important part of my graduate experience because it provided a place to talk openly about research interests and bounce ideas off of people without needing to sound eh, too well-informed. If you are a student or you're considering graduate school, I think it is important to realize that if you feel like the dumbest person in the room, you are not alone. Most of your professors would admit that this is how they felt. Of course, I was much older when the other, uh, than the other students in my cohort, but you know, that really didn't stand in the way of creating friendships and a support system. As a student, whether you're a graduate student or an undergraduate, it is important to try to connect with other students. 
This is an aspect of the discussions in the online courses at SNHU that's very important. I found in my courses that students form connections and support one another through their interaction in the discussion boards. I highly suggest that if you're a student, you take advantage of this opportunity to enhance your experience by viewing the discussion boards as a place to connect with your classmates and not just as an additional assignment. As a professor, I too try to stay engaged in the discussion because it provides me with a great chance to get acquainted with my students. As I completed my master's thesis, I faced that daunting task of picking a research topic for my dissertation. My master's thesis was on the Oromo people of Ethiopia, and because of my interest in Ethiopia and the background work that I had done for my thesis, it kind of seemed like the natural uh, progression to choose a topic related to Ethiopia. However, as I mentioned, because I was doing world history, a regional topic would not suffice, and so I needed to find a topic that had global connections. One of the things that drew me to Ethiopia was because it was one of those rare places in the world where Islam, Judaism, and Christianity coexisted from antiquity. I just found it interesting that throughout history, these three religious systems in that place had basically operated and had been uh, impacted by people, the people in Ethiopia. And so I decided to do my dissertation on something related to Ethiopia. So it might help if I give you an idea of a couple of events or aspects of Ethiopian history that were of great interest to me. So as I mentioned, um, I teach Middle Eastern history, and I have a really strong interest in Islam. In my teaching of Middle Eastern history, I was fascinated by the first Hijra uh, in 613. As most of you are aware, uh, Muhammad found himself at odds with the leadership in Mecca, and his followers were enduring great affliction. And in order to protect his followers and his family, he sent them to Ethiopia. Uh, this was, at that time, the Christian kingdom of Aksum. It is recorded that Muhammad told them, and this is a quote, If you were to go to Abyssinia, it would be better for you, for the king will not tolerate injustice. And so his followers, including his daughter uh, Fatima, went to Ethiopia. There were several waves of refugees that went and stayed until Muhammad was settled in Medina around 628. I just found it very, very interesting that Muhammad would find safety for his people in a Christian nation. Additionally, Muhammad put out a fatwa that basically Ethiopia should not be attacked because of the protection that they had offered his followers and his family. The other event that I found very compelling has to do with the Queen of Sheba. Uh, Ethiopian history, or at least one version of it, suggests that the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon and through a series of events, uh, the two of them had a child together. Sheba went back home with their son, Menelik, and their son, Menelik, grew up in Ethiopia. After he reached adulthood, his mother wanted him to go visit his father, and so Menelik went to see Solomon. Solomon was quite taken with the young man, and he wanted him to stay in Israel. Uh, but Menelik wanted to go home. Because Solomon did not want Menelik to lose connection with his Jewish heritage, Solomon ordered the oldest sons of each of the 12 tribes to accompany Menelik to Ethiopia. Of course, they were not all that happy um, and did not want to leave home, so they stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it back to Ethiopia with them. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has the Ark in a secure place in the Church of Our Lady um, Mary of Zion, 
and in, in Axum, and then once a year at the festival of Timcat, the high priest goes in much as they did in the early in early Jewish history. So for me, the idea of Christians and Jews and Muslims actually getting along with one another was fascinating. And I wondered if there were any lessons to be learned, so I began to search for a dissertation topic related to these ideas. As a PhD student, your research needs to be unique and add something to the field. It can be a real challenge to find a topic that you are passionate enough about to put in the labor required to complete a dissertation. As I mentioned, I had a general idea of what I wanted to do, and so I began the search for a way to focus my research. Well, at this time, I began working with Professor Marina Tomacheva, uh, who was a member of the Washington State University faculty. Uh, Dr. Tomacheva is Russian, and she does Middle Eastern history. She's also interested in African history, and she suggested I consider looking into the involvement of the Russians in the Boer War in South Africa. As I looked into this, I found that Russian advisors had gone to Ethiopia and trained the Ethiopian military. This seemed like something that could lead to some interesting research. So after finishing my prelims and preparing for my dissertation proposal meeting, I began to do research in this area. It was at this point, and actually quite by accident, that I ran across a piece of information that was a pivotal point for me and helped me to focus my dissertation research. As I began my search, I ran um, across this kind of random quote from the Depression Diary of Mrs. Clara Ackerman. She was an Iowa housewife, and she wrote in her diary among the discussion of farm prices and the Depression about concerns related to the peace conference in session in Geneva, Switzerland at the time. Um, she wrote about the importance of them have, being able to deal with disarmament. This was interesting to me because I was trying to imagine why in the midst of so many problems, this farm wife would care about what's happening half a world away. So whether you're a student or an academic who's already finished your graduate work, I think we all have those moments when something comes to us and it changes the direction that we're going in. I did a lot of research on topics that did not end up being part of my dissertation, but they informed my approach. No research is wasted. Um, every time we learn about a group of people or a given event, it impacts the way we view the world. So because of my interest in Ethiopia and my upbringing in rural Oklahoma, this letter put me on a path which circuitously led me to do examine the Italo-Ethiopian dispute before the League of Nations between 1934 and 1938. Now I'll get into that into more detail uh, later on, but right now I want to share how the project developed and about my research experience. As I began to look into the League of Nations and Ethiopia, I ran across some documents related to the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. I decided this was something I would like to research and see if I could find, you know, something really unique about this to discuss. At this point, I began to do research in earnest, and I went to the archive for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Rome. Um, I visited this archive actually several summers and worked on the collected documents um, there to translate them from Italian into English. I was still floundering a bit and decided my next step would be to visit the British National Archives in London um, because they actually held uh, a number of the documents that I felt like I needed to have. 
So I planned a summer trip uh, to both Rome and London. As I was preparing for this trip, I ran across a letter uh, from a woman named Mrs. E.K. Carroll, uh, who lived in Shepherd's Bush in London. It was dated September 21, 1936. In this letter, she states, Should you exclude Abyssinia from the League, will you ask the Italian government what measure of justice they propose to offer to the emperor of Ethiopia and the people of Abyssinia? As Abyssinia was accepted as a member, I see no reason why they should be excluded now. I fail to see why it will endanger Italy's prestige or the prestige of any other nation if they are allowed to remain. So what she's talking about is uh, the League of Nations being accepted not only into, or Ethiopia not only being accepted into the League of Nations, but also um, maintaining full member status and um, having all of the rights that all the other members had. And so this woman in Shepherd's Bush in London felt this was very important. So when I was looking at this, I really wasn't clear um, about all the things she was referring to. So I decided that I would get in touch with the archivist uh, where the, this letter was located. And as I looked around to find that, it led me to the League of Nations archive in Geneva, Switzerland. Well, I spoke with a wonderful archivist there named Jacques, um, who communicated with me for several months about the materials they had available. Uh, he ran across some records uh, approximately 10 boxes of letters related to the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. In checking his records, he found that these boxes had never really been used for any substantial research, and so I added this archive to my summer trip. So in 2011, I spent the summer in Europe visiting the archives in both uh, in Rome, in London, and in Geneva. I'll tell you that it was just one of the most exciting things to experience. Um, being at the United Nations in Geneva was in itself amazing. I sat in the cafeteria and I listened to people from all over the world, from nations who were actually on the brink of war, talking about humanitarian issues in their countries and how they would like to solve them so that the people in their countries could flourish. It just seemed to me like at that moment that perhaps, perhaps there was some hope that the human race would find a way to see themselves as a community instead of just as groups of different people vying for control and power for the world's re of the world's resources. Then, added to that, I walked into the archive and, and Jacques had the boxes brought up for me and I began to read through letters from people who live literally all over the world, pleading with the League of Nations to help this small African country against a European power. To see young people from India, housewives from the United States, women from Chile, Argentina, Brazil, all seeking to influence the first truly international organization was absolutely amazing. I spent several weeks with these letters and with these people, and by the time my time there was completed, you know, I felt I knew them. Um, it, was a, it was actually a memory that I will just never forget. Uh, it will forever give me hope that the world is not as much of a mess <laughs> as it appears in the nightly news and that in the little towns and the countries of the world, there are still really voices of hope. Um, and so I just really felt that this was a, a life-changing event for me. So I wanna make two points here that I think are extremely important to anyone who's doing research, whether you're an academic considering doing another research project or a graduate student preparing to do your thesis or dissertation. Remember, 
You're telling the stories that have not been heard before. Um, you're telling the stories of people who are virtually nobody. The letters that I looked at and examined at the League of Nations Archive in Geneva were letters from people who were, they had no political power, no wealth, no influence, but they felt this situation was so important that it demanded that they write to the League of Nations and let their voices be heard. For me, this is one of the important things about doing history. We get the opportunity to tell stories and to help people become aware of things that often go totally by without anyone paying any attention. There are just so many stories yet to be told. There's so much information and so many voices that have not been heard. So I just really encourage you to tell those stories that are out there because the story you tell might be an important point to somebody else um, that hears it. And I just know how much hearing the stories that I read whenever I was at the League of Nations Archive and how much they encouraged me um, generally. So when I write a letter to my congressman now, when I write a letter to a foreign government concerning human rights abuses, anytime I do that, I am providing one more voice that may make the difference in someone else's life or in the choices that are made by a congressman or a government leader or by people who actually do have some power to make changes. For me, this piece of research was in a way life-changing because it made me realize that even one voice has value and even one voice can make a difference. So as an academic, sometimes it just feels like our work is rather benign, um, but it's important to realize that the stories you're telling may be the encouragement someone else needs to go out and make a difference in the world. So these stories are important. And lest we forget, the people who live these experiences we write about, they deserve to be heard. Okay, so as you can see, I am very, very passionate about history. Um, and so now as we move forward, I want to get to the interesting part <laughs> and tell you about my research. Um, I'll be doing this by giving you some background on the dispute. Also, also give you an introduction to the theory behind the idea of world opinion. And then I will share a few letters with you before uh, I end this podcast. In 1891, the British and Italians entered an agreement placing all of Ethiopia, including the Western Ethiopian Highlands and Lake Tana, under an Italian sphere of influence. As a result of the concerns raised by this alliance between these two imperial powers, in 1893, Menelik denounced the Treaty of Ukali, initiating the First Italo-Ethiopian War of 1895-1896, which this war culminated in the defeat of the Italians at Attawa in March, uh, for, on March 1, 1896. This win for the Ethiopians had two significant repercussions that are important to this discussion. First, it stunned the leaders of the Ethiopian states and put Ethiopia of the European states and put Ethiopia on the international map, contributing to their acceptance into the League of Nations. Second, it created a sense of shame among the Italians, not the least of which was an adolescent boy named Benito Mussolini. This contributed to the adult Mussolini's desire for retribution. According to David Matthews in his book, Ethiopia, the Study of a Polity, 1540 to 1935-1935, Every other European setback had led automatically to punitive expeditions. The defeat of the Italians was followed by peace. This result had two effects. It gave the Abyssinians a new legend 
um, and a pride which was to impede even military modernizations. While on the other hand, it left to the Italians a humiliating memory. The defeat and its acceptance formed together a disaster which was not consistent with the record of Italy as a great power. Menelik uh, signed the Treaty of Addis Ababa, which recognized Ethiopia as a sovereign state under the control of Menelik. Things began to progress for Menelik, and in 1897, the French began to build a railroad from Addis Ababa to the port of Djibouti. Um, a few years later, telegraph lines were constructed by the French and uh, with Italian engineers. In 1905, the National Bank of Egypt founded the Bank of Abyssinia, and in 1908, the first school uh, sponsored by the Ethiopian government opened. Menelik's plan of modernization was moving along. Uh, Menelik worked to create international political alliances during his reign. Um, for instance, legations from Russia, Britain, France, and Italy were all established between 1897 and 1908. Menelik worked to see that no European power held too much control over any aspect of Europe, uh, Ethiopian territory or interests. Recognizing the interests of France, Britain, and Italy, Menelik signed treaties that spread the power out, hoping that this would help Ethiopia maintain independence. The strategic role of Ethiopia for France, Britain, and Italy provides a little bit of context for the response of these governments during the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. As pointed out by Vivisha Halden Norberg and the monograph Swedes and Ali Selassie's Ethiopia, 1924-1952, and I quote, Before Attawa, Britain had considered Ethiopia as an Italian sphere of influence. The British had relied on Italy as a watchdog against a possible French advance into the Nile Valley from the east. The French wanted to strengthen their position in Ethiopia in order to use it as a base from which to join hands with their West African possessions. European powers, as well as the United States, were interested in taking part in the economic exploitation of Ethiopia. Menelik's plan seemed to be workable. However, he did not take into account the role of European family politics. In December 1906, Britain, Italy, and France entered a separate agreement called the, Tri the Tripartite Treaty. By the articles of this treaty, these three states agreed to consult one another before taking any significant action in Ethiopia that would compromise Ethiopia's political or territorial integrity. Each agreed to a specific sphere of influence. Um, the French got their railway, the British Lake Tana and the Blue Nile, uh, or the British got Lake Tana and the Blue Nile, and Italy was recognized as having an interest in linking her two colonies in Eritrea and the and Italian Somaliland across Ethiopia. The British maintained access and control to Lake Tana and the river system of the Nile, which was critical to their use of Egypt as a breadbasket for the empire. Uh, the French needed to transport needed a transport line from Somaliland to the Mediterranean, and this would be accomplished by building a railroad from French Somaliland to the White Nile. So Italy, France, and Britain had been actively engaged in dividing up the interests, their interests in Ethiopia well before the outbreak of World War I. After the war ended and the League of Nations was formed, uh, provisions of the League Covenant stated that signatory states were to respect the territorial integrity and political sovereignty of other member states. Now, the failure of Italy to adhere to the covenant led to the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. 
The formation of the League of Nations after World War I was part of the Treaty of Versailles signed on June 28, 1919. For the Axis powers, this treaty was harsh. However, even some Allied powers were disappointed in the conditions of peace. The Italians had fought alongside the British, French, and Americans to ensure victory in World War II, yet at Versailles they were virtually excluded from the negotiations. Land along the Adriatic that was promised to them by the Allies did not materialize. In addition, the economy of Italy was devastated after the war. Uh, these conditions prepared the way for Mussolini to gain support because he claimed that he would revive the glory of the old Roman Empire and help Italy regain international respect um, that it had lost. When Ethiopia was admitted to the League of Nations in 1923, the Italians strongly protested. But they were unsuccessful. Mussolini had not forgotten the humiliation of Italy's defeat of Ethiopia at Adawa in 1896, and he vowed to set things right. As early as 1924, during the regency of Rastafari, uh, who would later be known as Ali Selassie I, um, the British and Italians once more engaged in backdoor diplomacy. They signed an agreement in which Britain agreed to recognize Italy's exclusive economic interest in Western Ethiopia and virtually put the entire country under Italy's sphere of influence. The, Opian, the Ethiopians filed an appeal before the League of Nations, which was supported by France. This appeal came to naught, and in 1928, Ethiopia signed the Treaty of Friendship between Italy and Abyssinia. The first article of this treaty states, There shall be durable peace and perpetual friendship between the Kingdom of Italy and the Ethiopian Empire. This treaty was to remain in force for 20 years. In addition to these treaties, there was another one that you know, actually played a very important part in the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. And that's the Kellogg-Briand uh, Pact, uh, which was signed in, on August 27, 1928. This treaty was signed by representatives of numerous countries, including Italy, France, and the United Kingdom. It prohibited war and stated a frank renunciation of war as an instrument of national policy should be made to the end that the peaceful and friendly relations now existing between their peoples may be perpetuated. The only exception was in the case of self-defense. By the time the treaty became effective in July 1929, Ethiopia had also signed on to adhere to the conditions of the treaty. So at the beginning of the Italo-Ethiopian dispute, the Italians and Ethiopians were bound by three distinct agreements, the 1928 Treaty of Fri Friendship Treaty, the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, and the Covenant of the League of Nations. However, time showed that none of these agreements were effective in curtailing Italian imperial ambitions. When Woodrow Wilson advocated for a league in 1919, it was intended to create an alternative to the state of international anarchy fed by excessive secrecy, rampant militarism, and autocratic government that had preceded World War I. Calling on his experience with the Pan-American Union, Wilson proposed an organization that ensured territorial integrity and political independence to all members. This was a key idea in the expression of world opinion sent to the League of Nations during the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. Because both Britain and the United States were not threatened by hostile powers on their frontier territories, they could be idealistic. The resultant 26 articles were constructed to address disarmament, conditions of labor for working people, international shipping and commerce, rights of racial and ethnic minorities within nations, and the future of colonial possessions. 
So um, as you can expect, it was this final aspect that created the most difficult challenge faced by the League regarding the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. The Ethiopians saw the League as their defense against Italian invasion. Italy did not view the League as powerful enough to intervene because they had agreements with both Britain and France concerning an Italian sphere of influence in Ethiopia. These two views came into conflict in 1934 with the escalation of tensions between Italy and Ethiopia. Now, prior to the actual outbreak of hostilities at Walwal in December 1934, tensions had been escalating, um, and Italy's desire to claim Ethiopia as an imperial territory was very clear. Additionally, both Brit British and French interests supported it Italy's claim as long as they received their consolations. Ethiopian officials believed that they could trust the League of Nations to keep them safe. The European powers involved acted outside of the League framework to reach their strategic goals. The Italo-Ethiopian dispute illustrated the conflict between imperialism and the League covenant. In addition, it exposed the weakness of an organization that was subject to the great powers and in which small states were virtually powerless. The Italo-Ethiopian dispute came close on the heels of the Manchurian crisis, as pointed out by Martin Houdson Hals, in League of Nations and the Organization of Peace. And I quote, If Japanese ambitions in Manchuria proved a turning point for collective security, Italy's colonial ambitions in Africa sounded its death knell. So according to Houdson, um, this was a major issue in relation to the idea of collective security. The Italians held Somaliland and exerted pressure on Ethiopia from this neighboring territory. Uh, Mussolini began to draw up plans for an incursion in Ethiopia in 1932. However, historians have identified the incident at Walwal -Wal, um, in 1934 as the beginning of hostilities. In 1934, Mussolini's opportunity to expand control in East Africa came as a response to the Walwal incident. So to give you an idea of what actually, what kind of what happened here, on November 22, 1934, 1,000 Ethiopian militiamen arrived at Walwal. This was an Italian outpost manned by a Somali garrison. The Ethiopians demanded that the Somali leave the outpost and they refused. It was actually in what we would call disputed territory. Between December 5th and December 7th, several skirmishes between the Somalis and Ethiopians broke out. The Italians claimed that they were attacked by Ethiopians, and the Ethiopians claimed that they were attacked by the Italians. This incident marks the official beginning of the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. As the dispute continued, both parties looked to the League of Nations for support, or so it seemed. However, while Ethiopia was seeking arbitration, the Italians were moving military troops and equipment into East Africa. And although Ethiopia was a member of the League, it was not a member of the European family, and family politics would be its undoing. Before the dust settled, Italy invaded Ethiopia. Now, Abyssinia expected that the treaties uh, between the two countries signed in 1928 would be honored by Italy, leading to an arbitration of the hostilities. However, the Abyssinians underestimated Mussolini's resolve. Uh, according to the historian Philip Morgan, Mussolini advised his military and civilian leaders that armed conflict had been decided upon, stating basically that his empire could not be made in any other way than through war. 
Immediately, Britain and France became concerned about the resolution of this conflict. It was feared that swift and decisive action by the League would result in pushing Mussolini into an alliance with Hitler. Not wanting to leave the issue to the League and yet not desiring to abandon the idea of collective security, the French and British began a dialogue with Italy outside of the League framework. Um, the League of Nations' direct involvement in the dispute formally began on January 3, 1935, uh, when the Ethiopian government made an appeal to the League under Article 11, Paragraph 2. And I quote, It is also declared to be the friendly right of each member of the League to bring to the attention of the Assembly or of the Council any circumstance, whatever, affecting international relations which threatens to disturb international peace or the good understanding between nations upon which peace depends. So the French and the British weighed the cost of offending Mussolini and that of supporting the Ethiopians and made a strategic decision to attempt to find a settlement to the issue that appeased Mussolini and their electorate. Um, on September 3, 1935, the League of Nations completed their work on the Wall Wall incident and they held both parties blameless. Within one month, the Italian army had moved into Ethiopia and overwhelmed the Ethiopian army. Uh, the Ethiopians had not been preparing uh, for war because they expected that the League of Nations would intervene. The force of world opinion weighed so heavily on the League of Nations that on October 3rd, the exact same day that Italy invaded Ethiopia, the League Council acted, declaring that the Italians had violated the League Covenant by resorting to war against Ethiopia. On October 7, 1935, the League Council had named Italy the aggressor and plans were made to apply sanctions against the Italians. Within four days, the delegates from 51 countries approved the applications of trade sanctions and finally these went into effect on November 18, 1935. The embargoed items were credit, arms, raw materials, with the exception of oil, um, and that's another interesting story because one of the problems was that the, was the United States that was supplying oil to Italy. Um, and as you know, the United States never became a member of the League of Nations and we refused to honor that embargo. Um, in addition, imports from Italy were prohibited in member states. The Italian government imposed rationing of food and fuel and discount, discontinued economic relations with all powers that honored the sanctions. Now, fear of a larger conflict mounted, and the British government made agreements with Spain, Turkey, Yugoslavia, France, and Greece, promising mutual support should the conflagration expand beyond Ethiopia. Then, on December 9, 1935, Sir Samuel Hoare, the British Foreign Minister, and Pierre Laval, the French Premier, released their proposal to end the conflict by giving Italy most of Ethiopia and make the whole of Ethiopia an Italian economic sphere of influence. The Ethiopians expecting that Mussolini would not consent, agreed to the pact, but as suspected, Mussolini rejected it. Uh, ultimately, the outcome was not what Hoare or Laval had hoped for. Hoare was forced to resign from office immediately due to the outrage of world opinion and was replaced by Anthony Eden. Laval's government failed as a direct result of this debacle, and because the public was so angry, he left office on January 22, 1936. Interestingly, the British and French were not the only ones watching developments in Ethiopia. Germany was also biding its time. Foreign Minister Nayrath uh, was working the situation with Italy to fulfill the interests of Germany. 
Um, in 1935, the Germans forbade the export of arms to either belligerent, which is interesting. And although the Italians hoped to get raw materials from the Germans, the Germans were not willing to participate. And in line with the League of Nations, they imposed an embargo on the export of oils, fats, potatoes, iron, textiles, and steel. Um, however, they did continue to sell Italy coal. The Germans issued a statement that they would remain neutral between the League and Italy. However, the German Vice-Chancellor Papen suggested in a statement concerning the dispute that this was perhaps a ruse. Um, it might be possible that through the menace to the British imperial interests, the Abyssinian adventure would help to bring near the realization of the New World Order. Um, he also stated that it remains more probably, however, that a compromise will be made at the Nagasa's expense and at the cost of perhaps also uh, a notable bloodletting of Italy. Uh, the Nagasa is the name for the uh, uh, leader of Ethiopia. So the release of the Horde Laval Pact was a considerable concern to Hitler. As pointed out by Elizabeth Weissman in her article, Germany and the Attack Upon Abyssinia, published in uh, um, edited volume, the Ethiopian crisis touched on of appeasement. The possibility of this compromise tormented Hitler, and on 9th of December, it seemed that the blow had fallen, for on that day, the Horlaval Agreement of 7th of December was revealed to the French press. Consternation reigned in Berlin at the renewed possibility of complete German isolation, and the German press suddenly became the champion of the League of Nations against this plot. So the French and British and Italians were not the only ones involved in political intrigue. Indeed, the Germans were watching. And Weissman suggests that had the League succeeded in stopping the conflict between Italy and Ethiopia, the Germans would have been unlikely to have remilitarized the Rhineland. So now whether that's an accurate assessment is lost to history. However, um, as you can see, this event was an important precursor to World War II. And many at the time believed that if they could settle this amicably, there might be a more lasting peace on a global scale. Ultimately, the League was unable to forestall the Italians. Mussolini joined Hitler, and World War II did ensue. The Ethiopians never surrendered to the Italians, and finally, in 1941, the Italians were driven out of Ethiopia. One thing um, that took the League and the great powers by surprise in this particular situation was the expression of support they received from the common people in favor of Ethiopia. This was an expression of world opinion. And uh, so now I would also like to discuss the idea of world opinion. When I started looking at the letters at the League of Nations archive, I discovered that most of the letters were written by women. And to me, again, this is uh, 1938. Women in the United States had not been voting that long. And there were a number of places in the world where women were just getting the vote. It was an exciting time for women to be starting to get involved in the public sphere and I came across a book entitled Global Outrage, The Origins and Impact of World Opinion from the 1780s to the 21st Century by Dr. Peter Stearns, who writes a lot of world history books. Dr. Stearns is a professor of history at George Mason University. In his book, he focuses on the idea that there have been moments in world history that have been changed by the general public basically um, saying, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. One of the first recorded moments in history that Stearns identifies is the uh, abolition movement. This was a global movement to end slavery, and the Italo-Ethiopian dispute is another one of those moments. 
where the people of the world came together and they said to the League of Nations, uh, you need to stop Italy from invading Ethiopia. Uh, this invasion uh, is not right, and Ethiopia, as a League member, uh, should be protected. This is interesting when you consider ideas of race during this period in world history. I think about the United States and the struggles uh, our African-American population were facing, yet about one-third of the 3,000 letters I examined were from the U.S., and they were strongly in support of the Ethiopians over Italy. Another very interesting fact that came to light in this uh, is that in the world community, the Ethiopians were seen to be as more Christian than the Italian Catholics. Again, just an interesting consideration. This came up over and over again in the letters, and to and add to this the concern about Mussolini, and the world community saw fit to express considerable support for the Ethiopians. An examination of world opinion changes the story of the interwar years by going beyond the official record and looking at the ways ordinary people understood the events unfolding around them. So it also provides a way to examine the forces of change outside of the official story. So just to provide one example, uh, which we had discussed earlier, but during the Italo-Ethiopian dispute, world opinion played a primary role in forcing British Foreign Secretary Sir Hamil Hoare and French Prime Minister Pierre Lavelle out of office. Um, Stern's work examines world opinion in relation to outcomes. I examined uh, the idea of world opinion beyond outcomes and used archival materials to interrogate the historical formation of world opinion and the public spheres in which it is shaped. The Italo-Ethiopian dispute provides a unique opportunity to do this because of the rich repository of primary sources. Even at the time of the Italo-Ethiopian dispute, there was a recognition of the importance of what was happening. Um, for three years, thousands of people um, from around the world wrote letters to the League of Nations to demand action. And most of these were from, actually, a lot of these were from organizations which represented the views of millions of people. Um, in the process of doing this, they demonstrated the belief that their voices were important and that they could have an influence on international affairs. Uh, for example, in just uh, in the period from August 30th to September 4th, 1935, in anticipation of the first meeting to formally address the dispute, approximately 10,000 telegrams were cataloged at the League. In response, the Journal des Nations, uh, which was the official publication of the League of Nations, stated that, and I quote, this is the spontaneous outburst of a world opinion that believes in the Pacific existence that the covenant teaches. So even at the time, there was this recognition Global public opinion, or what Stearns calls world opinion, is a little bit different than the idea of public opinion, say, in the United States or in any particular country. When publics, which are defined as groups of people who congregate outside of the private sphere to discuss political or social issues pertaining to current events, when these publics reach a consensus on an issue of global import and communicate this opinion, Beyond national borders, they express world opinion. World opinion is formed within a public sphere, and that public sphere is defined as a discursive space where individuals congregate to consider matters of mutual interest. 
and where uh, possible, they reach a consensus about an issue that ignites intense public passion. World opinion is a specific kind of public opinion. Uh, public opinion is identified as the opinions of the public concerning specific events or issues of public interest. Where individual values tend to be rather stable, public opinion can change very rapidly and is subject to a variety of external conditions. Populations exposed to similar information will often influence one another, creating a sort of group think that is conceptualized as public opinion, and it's expressed in nationalistic terms. In an international setting, public opinion is better described as world opinion, yet there are distinct differences. Um, world opinion transcends national interests and beliefs. Public opinion um, is primarily a response to media, while world opinion is broader, and it includes a passionate response to events occurring outside of national boundaries. It's basically a response based on the sense of shared humanity and universal moral standards, which may or may not be ingrained an ingrained part of the individual's identity. Uh, world opinion is rarely, in fact, truly global. Rather, it represents the opinions of a small part of the overall population that is educated enough and tuned in enough to global events to actually become involved. So now that we have a general idea of the background and the theoretical framework, I'd like to provide you with a few examples of the letters that were written to the League. It's important to note that support for the Ethiopians did not come from one political, religious, or racial group. The situation garnered support from a very diverse group of people, um, youth in Spain identified with the Ethiopians and decried the aggression of Italy um, as an imperialist uh, political move in Ethiopia. The uh, uh, Spanish, there was a Spanish group called the Republican Left Youth, which sent numerous communications to the League requesting that they adhere to the principles of the covenant and support peace against aggression. In both Greece and Spain, the responses pointed out the anti-imperialist sentiment of the public and support for territorial independence is spelled out in the League of Nations Covenant. Well, both Spain and Greece were very closely tied to Italy, whether uh, congenial or not, and they were geographically located so that they, more than their northern European neighbors, uh, had much at stake in expressing their opinions in this conflict. Socialism and communism drew significant support from youth and workers, and both of these political movements were active in voicing their opinions concerning the Italo-Ethiopian dispute. Um, and they also represent another important block of world opinion. In this case, the opinions are heavily influenced by political and religious beliefs. However, um, another group with youth, there was a unity of purpose that transcended boundaries. Um, in 1935, in September, a resolution was passed by the 28th Annual Students' Camp, which was a Christian youth meeting held in India. This camp was attended by college-age Christians from the Andahara area of India. Youth of the day were facing a tentative future, and the letter which accompanied the resolution sent to the League of Nations very eloquently states what many of the communications from youth during the Italo-Ethiopian dispute included. Here is a quote uh, from that letter. During the camp, we face the challenge of India today with regard to the religious, economic, social, and political problems that are facing the Indian youth now. 
Among the delegation was a student from Abyssinia, and he took active part with us all, and we felt that we are all one in Christ, whether from east or west, north or south. We offered special prayers for the statesmen of the world so that they may approach the question in a Christian way and solve it in the best interest of his kingdom. Youth of the day were concerned about how the world would look when they became adults. In addition, it can be assumed that many of the students at this camp were from colonial areas. The resolution that this group passed stated, and I quote, The students and the leaders of the Andahara Christian Students Camp met in Masopatamum would like to unite with the world forces making for international peace, goodwill, and harmony, and oppose in the name of the Prince of Peace and the God of Love the aggressive attitude of Italy and Abyssinia and appeal to the League of Nations to explore all the possibilities of a peaceful settlement and vindicate once and forever that we are members of a world family under the fatherhood of God. Now, this resolution and the accompanying letter bring up some pertinent concerns about the formation expression of world opinion with respect to the dispute. One thing that must be considered is the role that the leaders of the camp played um, in forming the opinions of the students. Additionally, this should be balanced by the presence of an Abyssinian student uh, who was able to put a very human face on the dispute. In considering expressions of world opinion and the formative nature of these world opinions, um, there's a complex intersection between shared outrage and injustice and influences of those who exert power in the public sphere in which the particular world opinion is shaped. Again, keeping in mind that as Stearns pointed out, world opinion is not in fact global, the examination of counter-public spheres reveals world opinion is an expression that is created in multiple public spheres, but it focuses on the same general outcome, and in this case, that outcome was uh, peace and collective security. One of the more interesting responses from youth was sent in from the students at Muskegon College in the United States. It's interesting for two reasons. Uh, first, because of the content of the letter and also because of the response it received at the League of Nations. It does not specifically reference race or religion, but as a Christian college and due to its content, it has applications to both. Um, the letter stated, it has been reported to the faculty and students of Muskegon College that Mr. Bashaward Hapatold, who graduated from Muskegon in 1929, was murdered by Italians in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, a few weeks ago. This murder, we understood, was in reprisal upon the life of Viceroyal, Viceroy Marshal Graziana by two of Mr. Hotwald's countrymen, in which he had no part directly or indirectly. The particular incident being discussed here was an abortive attempt on the life of Graziani um, on February 19, 1937. Using this as an excuse to kill the intellectuals who had been active in inciting resistance, Graziani initiated what became known as the Graziani Massacre. Ethiopian scholar Baru Zudwe provides an analysis of, the, analysis of the events concerning the death of the student mentioned by this group from Muskegon College. All those intellectuals whom the Italians could lay their hands on were rounded up, and most of them were shot after perfunctory interrogations. Singled out as a mastermind of the whole plot was Bashwarid Gupadwalde. Uh, who had earlier accompanied the emperor into exile, but had then returned and settled in Addis Ababa. According to one informant, the very fact of his return was apparently one of the circumstances that made him a prime suspect in the eyes of the Italians. 
Now, this group goes on to request an investigation of the incident by the League. Um, so the public spheres through which world opinion is created are complex. This communication provides an opportunity to examine the importance of the way world opinion is communicated by the public. And in this case, when the students wrote, they did not just demand general actions against Italy. They connected their demand to a specific injustice. This influenced the reception of this communication by the League of Nations Secretariat. Another group of people that were involved were women. Um, in my examination, I would estimate that nearly half of the letters I examined came from women or women's organizations, many of which were affiliated with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is still active today. Um, this organization was founded by Jane Addams and others and champions women's causes around the world. Uh, one very important figure in the idea in the thoughts and the expressions of public opinion or world opinion by women is Princess Tahisha Ali Selassie of Ethiopia. Uh, she was very publicly active in making a plea to women around the world to support peace and to help Ethiopia. The princess was well known um, to the European and American women who were leaders of these large international organizations. Uh, because of her ethnic identity, she also appealed to non-European women. On March 31st, 1936, uh, they, there was a letter sent which focuses on the important influence of Princess Tisha and on world uh, opinion among women. Here is uh, a part of that letter. As a representative body... For millions of women of all races, beliefs, and nationalities, the Committee for Peace and Disarmament created by women's organizations leads to answer the call of Princess Tisha, president of the Ethiopian Women's Work Association, seeking the assistance of women from around the world to make known the agony cast upon her people, including women and children in the cities and villages because of use of gas by the Italian army. As women with no illusions about the dehumanization caused by war, it is particularly odious to think that civilian populations with no defense are victims of these attacks. The use of gas by Italy against Abyssinia is a deliberate violation of the Protocol of 1925. There's no military or defensive strategy for its use. The violation of the treaty is all the more odious because both countries have accepted the call of the Committee of 13 as to peaceful settlement of the conflict by negotiations. While a search for terms of an agreement uh, that would end the conflict are in progress, a terror campaign is conducted. In light of these facts, we want to lodge a protest with the Committee of 13 against the use of these methods. We call on all members in the name of humanity to search with energy and perseverance in the name of humanity for a way to end this war and solve this conflict in accordance with the principles of the League of Nations. We inform the committee that we have sent a copy of this protest to the International Committee of the Red Cross and to women of all countries, insisting that each of them pledge to do everything in their power to influence public opinion, end quote. So the women in this group were not only expressing world opinion, but they were calling on their constituency to make their voices heard by using their resources to shape world opinion within the public sphere it inhabited, uh, theoretically all women. It's plausible that the reason so many women became involved in this discussion is because of the influence of these large international organizations uh, like the WILPF and uh, the Women's Peace Organizations. 
On June 17, 1936, the League received the following communication from the National Free Church Women's Association located in London. This general committee of the National Free Church Women's Council representing free church women in England and Wales expresses its deep concern at the wrong done to Abyssinia and urges uh, His Majesty's government to support the League of Nations in refusing to recognize its annexation of Italy by Italy. Uh, this committee also tenders respectful sympathy to the Emperor of Abyssinia and Princess Tisha and assures them that many Christian women have have them and their people in prayerful remembrance. So it is in, it's clear that this group was motivated to respond to the appeal of Princess Tisha because of their imagined connection to her. The appeals by both uh, Emperor Haile Selassie and the princess were instrumental in solidifying public support for the Ethiopians and their struggle to defend their homes. Um, during the period of high imperialism from 1830 to 1914, independent Ethiopia was considered a bastion of hope for colonized people. Uh, with the defeat of the Italian military at Attawa, Ethiopia solidified its place not only among people of color, but in the minds of Europeans. So the invasion of Italy enhanced a sense of racial solidarity among people of color, and it raised the ire of colonized people. Now, although all three of the major international women's organizations claimed to be seeking equality and uniting women of all races, religions, and nations, they were not completely successful at dealing with issues of race and religion. Uh, the IAW, for instance, uh, claimed women's rights as its primary goal, espousing liberal feminism that sought legal and political equality with women, while still in some ways practicing a certain amount of racism in the internal structure of their organization. As part of the final example uh, from the archival sources that I'll be able to share with you today, uh, there's one from the World Union of Colored Women for Peace and International Concord. I want to share this one because I think it's important that you understand the complicated nature of the submission of these letters and their receipt at the League of Nations and how they were handled by those in charge. So this is a quote from a letter that was sent in September of 1935 from uh, this Peace and International Concord group. This is not from the colored women's part of that group. It, this is just from the international group. Uh, which is known as the peace, the group for uh, women for peace and international concord. So I'll, I'll read you the letter. Fearing to prolong the session this afternoon, we present you with the request letter, which we take to heart. We have been asked by one of our branches in America, the World Union of Colored Women for Peace and International Concord, to transmit to the League of Nations the attached appeal. We learned that this document submitted in August had not reached its intended goal, and we request that it be restored to us. Acknowledging the importance of the mandate that was entrusted to us, we present you this petition signed by nearly 150,000 people grouped in 31 associations. What is of peculiar interest is that these wishes emanate from a country that does not belong, yet belong to the League of Nations and groups exclusively comprised of people belonging to colored races. Sharing the same desires as the League of Nations, we try tirelessly to awaken interest and public confidence in this institution 
This call is a direct result of our efforts. There also is an urgent need to give satisfaction to those which are responsible for transmitting these calls by assuring them that they are duly welcomed by the great institution to which they are intended. This satisfaction is sure to be a valuable incentive for thousands to show their support uh, for the League of Nations. End quote. Okay, so this is really important because this group is a major was a major uh, influencer at the League of Nations, and they are pointing out that this particular letter comes from a country, the United States, which does not actually is not a league member. And it would be awesome if the United States did join the league. It would be uh, it would have really made a big difference in the way the League of Nations was able to operate and the power that they would have. And so this the people, the women in this organization are telling them, come on, you you really need to pay attention to this because this is a way to get support for you in a country where you at this point are not being, you know, supported. So this, the original document, this original letter had been forwarded to the League of Nations in July or August of 1935, but had not been put on the correspondence list distributed to the League delegates as requested. So uh, due to this group's affiliation with an organization that was officially recognized by the League, it was unusual that this didn't get on that list because all correspondence from recognized organizations was to be entered on a list and made available to the League Council. After the receipt of this letter from the International Branch, the following communication was sent from the Office of the Secretary General of the League of Nations. And I quote, I have the honor to acknowledge receipt of your letter of September 13, 1935, addressed to the President of the Assembly, transmitting the appeal of one of the branches of the Union in America, the World Union of Colored Women for Peace and International Concord. I will not fail to inform the Council of the League of Nations of receipt of your letter by way of the list of international non-official communications, which is distributed regularly to the Council. Please accept, Madam, the assurances of my highest consideration. So this letter dated uh, September 30th, two weeks after the original letter, acknowledges the receipt of that September 13th letter. However, it does not provide any explanation about the earlier communication and why it had not been added to the list of correspondence distributed to the League delegates. So perhaps this was simply an oversight by the League Communications Office, but it is evident that when the international group sent in the petition, it was quickly attended to. So for this group, it was not unusual that the World Union of Colored Women for Peace and International Concord existed as such. Uh, the World Union for Peace and International Concord itself had other affiliates in which the members in other member states that were recognized based on a particular interest. So uh, some of them might be interested in uh, one thing or another. It might be the British uh, branch of the World Union for Peace and International Concord. Um, it could be, they, there were all kinds of particular interest groups. Um, the union states in their handbook that they have succeeded in bringing about valuable concerted action between social institutions which are divided or weakened by divergent tendencies or by no, minority questions. So in this case, an international women's organization promoted the interests of a subgroup within their body that self-identified in racial terms which is, uh, again, an interesting way to examine the idea of world opinion. 
As previously stated, Jane Addams, who is the founder of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, argued that the League was a man-made affair. Uh, just as discussed above regarding race, at times uh, women's voices were discounted. However, the archival records show that women were very involved and women who had the power and influence to have a voice supported those who did not. A very, another very interesting letter with a strong religious tone came from a woman in Scotland. It's worth examining here because of our previous discussion of women's identity as mothers and wives. This letter, like the one discussed above, um, uh, really represents that. Um, this letter was written to Mussolini and then a copy was sent to the League of Nations. And here's the uh, content of the letter. It's a terrible thing, this warfare that is going on. My heart is sore sick when I think of the poor women and children that are being cut down without mercy. And what for, dear sir? Has God given women to bear sons and daughters just for this? Or has he no greater or nobler gift to bestow on mankind than hate, than to hate one, of, uh, one another? Did Senora, your wife, bear your two lovely boys for destruction? Surely not. I love little children. Whether they be Italian, Ethiopian, or any other nationality on earth, I myself ask of you as a daughter of God and a believer in the Son of God that you will abstain from further bloodshed and make your peace with all men. So here was an individual woman pleading with Mussolini based on his connection to his wife and children. Um, in closing, as I mentioned, I have spent much time with these documents, and there are thousands of them, many of which I have not yet translated, and I am moved by the passion and the commitment of the writers. I believe the idea of world opinion is an intriguing one, and I ask myself uh, many times as I, I am working on my research projects in connection with this, what cause would it take in our time to unite us across boundaries of race, religion, and gender to collectively call for the end of injustice? And it's a sobering consideration. Um, I thank you for your time. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Sherry Wemlinger, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good May. <laughs> Wordplay. <laughs>